This podcast is brought to you by the Dunfield Retirement Residence, a casually elegant retirement community located at Young and Eglinton in the heart of Midtown Toronto. Customized living options complement your independent, active lifestyle. Learn more at thedunfield.com. I just have to close my door. That's what it sounded like Tuesday afternoon while I was on a Zoom call from our studio in Toronto, right in the middle of interviewing Michal Kotler-Wunsch, Israel's newest special envoy for combating anti-Semitism, ahead of her trip to Canada this week. It's her first trip back here since Israel's government appointed her to the new role seven weeks ago. As Kotler-Wunsch was speaking to me from her home in Ranana near Tel Aviv, the air raid sirens started blaring. So she grabbed her laptop and her phone and ran down the hall to the safe room, which is her bathroom, and then she immediately called her children to check if they were okay. Three are in the army somewhere. For Kotler Wunsch, leaving Israel right now to come here and lobby politicians and university presidents and meet Jewish leaders while her country's in the midst of what she calls an existential war with Hamas is excruciatingly hard for her, worrying about her family and as she will tell you, burying her friend's kids and also the kids of her friends. But the October 7th Hamas attack changed everything and raised the stakes, and it gave her a greater sense of urgency as Israel's new special envoy. The game plan of the genocidal regime in Iran and other terror regimes around the world is to actually build a caliphate on the rubble of civilization as we know it. So what begins with a canary in the mineshaft, in this case Israel, is not going to end with a canary in the mineshaft. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Wednesday, November the 1st, 2023. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Michal Kotler-Wunsch is pretty well known in Canada on her own merits. She grew up here in the late 1970s and 80s after her Israeli mother married Montreal law professor Erwin Kotler. The former justice minister and human rights crusader himself just stepped down last week from his tireless work as Canada's first special envoy on anti-Semitism and Holocaust remembrance. His daughter is a former member of the Israeli Knesset. She was elected in one of Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud coalition governments three years ago. She's also a human rights lawyer and was a legal advisor to families of Israel's hostages, including Lieutenant Hadar Golden and others kidnapped by Hamas in 2014, whose bodies have still not been returned. She took on the role as Israel's special envoy from her predecessor, Israeli actor Noah Tishbi, who got fired for clashing with the policies of the current Netanyahu coalition. Since October 7th, the new envoy has seen the scary surge in anti-Jewish hate unleashed around the world. And she's joining me now to talk about how to fight it and why she thinks Canada's stance on a UN vote about asking for a pause in the fighting to allow humanitarian aid to get through to the Palestinians is worse than silence and shows lack of moral clarity. Hi, thank you. It's good to have you. Congratulations belatedly on your appointment. How did the invasion and the attack October 7th change what your focus was going to be? October 7th exposed uh, and removed many, many masks. You're right that in my capacity or my role as Israel's special envoy for combating anti-Semitism, what is most critical and has been critical for me for decades is to make accessible 
what happened on October 7th. Um, and that is that the very same anti-Semitic hate that enabled, that fueled the atrocities, the war crimes, the crimes against humanity, the raping and the burning and the pillaging and the murder and the abduction of thousands of Jews by Hamas, a genocidal terror organization, that in its charter, like Mein Kampf, is committed to the annihilation of the Jewish nation state, Israel, and to the murder of Jews, that understanding that that very same anti-Semitism, that lethal hate that has for thousands of years enabled the murder of Jews and the butchering and the burning and the atrocities perpetrated against Jews, and this was the worst attack that Jews um, incurred since the Holocaust, that very same lethal hate not only enabled the atrocities of October 7th, but in fact enable the responses to the atrocities of October 7th. The denial, the justification, the excusing, the unfathomable support of Hamas, akin to 11 days after 9-11, support of Al-Qaeda. The unfathomable attacks of Jews all over the world, on the streets, on campuses and online, in Berlin, in France, in Montreal, in Toronto, in New York, in Washington. So what we see is actually a, 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 an intersection of the many, many different platforms that enabled the mutation of an ever mutating hate. We see an intersection between all of those forums in which anti-Semitism in its current mutated form of anti-Zionism has been allowed to fester and to permeate. And that's what October 7th made clear. We have a lot to unpack of what you just said, but I want to ask you again, how did it change your work? You said it unmasked the existing hate, but what were you going to do? And now how did it change what you have to do? So it's a very good question. In many ways, the sense of urgency that you can hear in my voice and that I definitely feel, that sense of urgency has been there for a long time in everything that I've done in my capacity, whether as researcher, as academic, as, as, a, as, as, as an MK in Israel's Knesset founding an interparliamentary task force to combat online anti-Semitism. That urgency in identifying and diagnosing what has happened on university campuses that has enabled um, the lie to be propelled of Zionism as racism, by the way, a 1975 UN resolution, Soviet propaganda, Soviet resolution, that in the name of progress has taken root across university campuses around the world, North America and Canada included. The understanding that that urgency has become something that not only I feel, but that I have a responsibility to make accessible and uh, uh, felt, which is very difficult, actually. It's very difficult to transfer a feeling. You can transfer intellectual understanding or theoretical understanding. It's very, very difficult to transfer or to relay a feeling. The understanding that never again is right now, the understanding that this is existential, is a big part of what October 7th did, including putting me on a plane, which is probably one of the hardest things I've had to do, just days after we buried our best friend's son, killed hours after the beginning of the war, and traveling to North America in order to make this accessible and the feeling of urgency relay it not only to Jewish communities in North America, 
but also to make this accessible to decision makers, to lawmakers, to city mayors, to universities, provosts and chancellors, to congressmen, to senators, to the second gentleman in the United States, to my own coalition of special envoys from combating anti-Semitism from all over the world. I'm sorry, I'm being, I have to go to the, there's a war, so I can take you into my safe space with me. Is there an attack now? Is yes, what's going on? there's incoming rockets the entire time. So she's going to the safe in her office, and we may not be able to get this done, but um, I hope she stays safe. The internet connection has gone. Oh my goodness. Is everything okay? Are you in the safe room? I don't know if you can hear me, but... I can hear you now. I just have to make sure that my kids are okay. Just one second, please. Yes, of course. I just want to know. It's still the sirens going. Uh, the siren... Uh, uh... 8,500 rockets. What I hear is the interceptions, big explosions. I don't know if you can hear them. In this space that I'm in, my family, it's 6.30 a.m. on Shabbat morning. And we have to be very clear on this. Each one of these rockets, according to international law, is a double crime. Each one of these rockets, not only targeting us, our children, civilians in Israel, is launched from densely populated areas in Gaza, endangering the Gazan civilians because Israel will have to retaliate against the rocket launchers that are beneath or each one a double crime according to international law. I can't hear. Sorry, you. I have to stay here for a few minutes. I know. I okay, know. we'll Take do this time. again. We can. Do this another time, but why don't you call your kids? So I stopped the conversation and we agreed to try to reconnect to finish in a few hours when things settled down. She was visibly shaken by the sirens and worried about her family, as you'll hear in part two. How are you? Oh my God. Are you all right? I mean, so many things have happened since. That's just our usual. It's not like a... Where are your kids? Um, so my youngest is home and the other three are in the army, each in different places. My 17-year-old was uh, volunteering, and he uh, went into the bomb shelter at the Hummus place. Um, this has been going on for years. Um, yeah. Okay, so we're picking up after uh, a dramatic uh, interruption of, of rockets where you had to go to the safe house and check on your kids. So we're going to step back for a minute and talk about... We were, we, were, we were talking about how October 7th changed your work and you were about you were starting to tell me that the urgency of this uh, made it even more important that you go and speak. So you're coming to Canada now and meeting with who and what is the message that you hope to to give to them in this new role? Because you know all these people already, but in this new role. I am meeting, as I did in the United States, with, I think I began to say, you know, members of parliament, senators. I very much hope uh, to be meeting ministers, minister of foreign affairs and minister of uh, internal affairs, because this is actually uh, very much a national security threat in Canada. And the um, anti-Semitism that enables the denial, the justification, the excusing, the explaining of the atrocities of October 7th, which I keep saying to people, if you cannot condemn those atrocities unconditionally, if you cannot condemn them unequivocally, if there's a but at the end of your sentence, then what you're doing is actually supporting genocidal terror that in its charter, like Mein Kampf, sets to annihilate the state of Israel and murder Jews. So we shouldn't be surprised that then, unfathomably, it is Jews in all those countries that 
maybe have shown support for Hamas, literally on the streets, we are Hamas signs, or have created the false moral equivalence, which just fuels the ability to support the genocidal terror. So saying there are two sides and we call on both sides and both sides should. Well, there are no two sides between a genocidal terror organization that seeks to annihilate a state and murder its people and Jews around the world, and that state, which has not only the right, but the responsibility to defend her people and her borders. So if you ask me about my job in all of those meetings, basically the intersection is, and it doesn't matter if it's university presidents, city mayors, um, education, uh, education uh, ministers, or law enforcement mechanisms. If you intend or voice your intent to combat anti-Semitism, where it is festering, where it has exploded. If you actually- Businesses in Toronto, Cafe Landwer and other businesses. Landwer, businesses, exactly right. You're going to have to first define what it is that you're committed to combat. And we have a definition. The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism is the result of a long democratic process. And it was not only adopted by 40, more than 40 countries and more than a thousand entities, but it was, it, was, it was done with a clear understanding that in order to be able to combat an ever-mutating hate, of which anti-Semitism is an ever-mutating hate, thousands of years that has mutated according to the guiding social construct of the time, religion, science, and I would say now the secular religion of our time, human rights, well, in order to be able to combat any virus, we all know post-COVID, this is much easier to understand, you can't just inoculate against the first strain or the second strain. You have to keep up with an ever-mutating virus, just like anti-Semitism has mutated, and be able to inoculate against the most recent strain, which is afflicting your society. And the most recent strain afflicting all of our societies that fueled the anti-Semitic attack of October 7th. And therefore, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition is the first step, adopting it and implementing it. Because it's not enough that a country like Canada adopted the IRA. It is just a small step. It is all of those ecosystems in which anti-Semitism is thriving and flourishing that are going to have to make very clear that when we say, for example, that diversity, equity, and inclusion apply to all students at university or at our workplaces or anywhere else, that includes Zionists who self-define as Zionists or are presumed to be Zionists, majority Jews self-define as Zionists, and non-Jews who actually believe that the state of Israel has a right to exist, the state of Israel to which Jews, a prototypical indigenous people returned after thousands of years of exile and persecution 75 years ago. If you deny Israel's right to exist, that is anti-Semitism. And at this very moment, denying Israel's right to defend itself is essentially denying its right to exist. If you're committed to enabling that Israel that Jewish nation state, the proverbial Jew among the nations, if you're committed to allow it to survive or to exist, it's going to have to defend itself from that genocidal terror. And there's no more denying that if we actually meant what we said in that never again prospective commitment in the future, it's not just about Holocaust denial. That is one form, one strain of anti-Semitism. But we cannot prevent the Holocaust. We can prevent what is happening right now, that never again is right now. And as opposed to the time of the Holocaust, where Jews had no ability to defend themselves and waited to be saved, and of course were not, 
at this moment in time, never again to us means never again will we wait for anybody to defend us, even if we die doing so. Speaking about two things you, you mentioned, I want to drill down on. Number one, the Holocaust. Um, you've called it a genocide, what happened October 7th. Oh, no, I didn't call it that. International law experts did. Forgive me for the paraphrasing. Are you aware of the symbolic the yellow star that was worn by the UN ambassador from Israel in New York? And what do you make of that? Um, it's quite controversial. What do you make of it? Well, I want to be very clear. Any trivialization of the Holocaust actually, you know, undermines that never again in the past. But and, and, and we should, you know, uh, instead of holding on to deeds, understand the root cause, the very same um, lethal hate that enabled the atrocities of the Holocaust, the dehumanization, the delegitimization and the double standards that essentially turned the Jew into vermin, into rats, that there was no humanity involved because if you de dehumanize somebody and it's exactly what Hamas did. And by the way, actually even referencing or echoing um, the shadow of the Holocaust, including in the genocidal ways, barbaric ways that they murdered, burning, using the idea of, 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 of ashes of Jews, um, using references on social media and elsewhere that Hitler should have finished the job that they will continue the job. We would be remiss if we did not understand that never again is right now. That is at the moment, the bloody canary in the mine shaft, which when the Holocaust was occurring, the canary in the mine shaft we said was the individual Jew. Well, now the canary in the mine shaft, the proverbial canary in the mine shaft, bloody as it may be, may be the first to die. And that is the nation state, the Jewish nation state, Israel. But the mine shaft is collapsing, meaning the same kind of assault the same kind of war raging against our shared humanity, against civilization, is precisely what the atrocities, the war crimes, the crimes against humanity, and the big difference is we now do have a state. We do have an IDF, and we do have half of us in Israel and half of us in the rest of the world, including North America, most of us, the other half is in North America, with altogether relative safety, and that means that we are all boots on the ground in this war, existential war on our nation state and on, on our people. And there is that piece of it. And that it is a war that we are fighting alongside so many others that are committed to those shared foundational principles of life and of, and of liberty that recognize that this is an assault on our shared humanity and on civilization as we know it, because the game plan is not just to destroy the state of Israel and murder its Jews, let's be clear, or to murder Jews around the world. I asked you about the wearing of the yellow star at the United Nations. You didn't say it was okay. You just said it explained something. So I want to ask you again, is it okay to do that? Was that a good thing strategically? Again, I think we take our eye off the ball to talk about the strategy. In many ways, that yellow star represents the treatment of the nation state of the Jewish people, including in that very institution in which it was worn. By the way, on November 2nd, uh, the genocidal terror regime of Iran will be named as the chair um, you're not going to believe this, so I'll be slow when I say it, the chair of the United Nations Human Rights Council Social Forum. The UN is, is useless. We all think about so that. The UN has not just gone nuts. The UN is a full participant in the enablement over decades 
of the atrocities that we saw on October 7th, in the double standards that it has applied to Israel systemically and systematically, in the countries that it enables to, uh, uh, to violate every one of its standards, in, in basically crushing what it was created and entrusted to uphold, promote, and protect those foundational principles of life and liberty equally and consistently. There are countries around the world that sit, that fund, that enable the UN institutions and its organizations, including the United States and including Canada, that have to be held to account for their responsibility to uphold, promote, and protect those foundational principles. When there are organizations like UNRWA, UNRWA educated the 2,000 plus savages that committed the atrocities of October 7th. But worse, UNRWA continues to educate Palestinian children as we speak right now with the same anti-Semitic curriculum that calls for the annihilation of the state of Israel and for the murder of Jews. UNRWA has been charged with um, uh, uh, allotting the humanitarian aid, which countries like Canada, like the United States, are actually sending knowing that Hamas genocidal terror has used over years humanitarian aid to build the infrastructure under hospitals in Gaza, under schools and mosques, to launch rockets, which you heard before, from underneath those hospitals, endangering their own civilians. So I think we would be much better off focusing on the imperative to hold to account all those that are actually silent, all those that vowed to uphold the never again principles and are actually enabling it the, 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 uh, the again and again as we speak, because never again is right now. If I could interject, Canada abstained, even though um, Canada tried to have a, in, the, in the UN a, an amendment to call, there was a, an, uh, to uh, have a pause so that the humanitarian corridor could go through uh, to give whatever to the Palestinians and Canada, tried to get their own amendment and it was defeated. And then, you know, the, the motion passed. Let's be but clear. Canada abstained. Yeah. Abstaining is silence. Abstaining, abstaining by a country like Canada is worse than silence because Canada is one of those countries that has extra responsibility to be really a beacon of light, the true north that we look to, to uphold and protect those foundational principles of life and of liberty and of human dignity. And when Canada abstains, the message that it gives the world is there is no moral clarity or there is moral ambiguity. If anybody cannot condemn unequivocally the atrocities of October 7th, no ifs and buts, no abstentions, condemn unequivocally the atrocities, the burning, the rape, the abduction, which is a continued um, um, assault on international law that Canada is mandated to uphold, promote and protect. Innocent lives that are lost, it's not that they're not sad and not tragic, it's that there's only one single entity that can be held to account, much like after 9-11. It was only Al-Qaeda that could be held to account for those uh, additional casualties, civilian casualties, of which there were tens of thousands, much like the war on ISIS. And I'll say, much like the war of the allies on the Nazis. I am sure that there were civilian casualties. And I, it is tragic, and any loss of life is tragic. But if we are not able to have moral clarity and courage that there is only one entity that must be held to account, and that is the Hamas genocidal terror organization, a proxy of Iran, Okay, talk to me about the hostages. I wanted I wanted to ask you your expertise because we're almost out of time. You in the 2014 
um, were have been an advisor. I don't know if you still are to the Hadar Golden family, Lieutenant Golden, and whose body, just for our listeners who may not be old enough or may not remember, one of several Israelis kidnapped and the body was still uh, being held by Hamas. And the parents have been trying, Hadar's parents have been trying to get the body released. What strategy that's, that's, should work? One boy, this is 250 almost people. How does Israel do this when they had still haven't gotten his body back? As you said, for over nine years, two deceased soldiers, Hadar Golden and Aron Shaul, there are two civilians, Avera Mangistu and Hisham Asayed, both emotionally unwell, that wandered into Gaza and have been held by the same genocidal terror organization, Hamas in the same place, Gaza, with the same silence of the international community, all of it, including the Red Cross that is mandated to visit, to demand visitations, including the UN and the UN Secretary General, who told us all that October 7th did not happen in a vacuum. Imagine if he would have told us that 9-11 did not happen in a vacuum or that the Holocaust did not happen in a vacuum. Those are the comparisons we need to be drawing. There are 240 civilians being held. There are countries, not only of those holding their citizenships, but all those countries that are actually mandated and entrusted to uphold, promote and protect international humanitarian law have the possibility, and I would say the responsibility, to make sure that the clear and unequivocal call for their immediate and unconditional release, all of them, all 240, is not only made by all of those countries and all of their institutions and all of the humanitarian aid that they're providing, but they are done because they are an affront to their responsibility to uphold humanitarian law. You know, we know that Hamas is diverting humanitarian aid. This is about. So, are you saying, just in a nutshell, they should cut it off, cut diplomatic relations, let your dad and his uh, organization represent, which is what he said he was doing as of yesterday, uh, and let Israel go in and get. Like, how, what is the outcome? They don't need to cut anything off. All they need to say is on these trucks in which we are sending humanitarian aid that we know Hamas is going to intercept to keep away from civilians. We're sorry, but we cannot provide humanitarian aid by force of international law until you do what we have to make sure is done, which is the immediate and unconditional return on these very trucks that you will send us 240 that you are holding in standing violation of international law. We will send humanitarian aid. The fact that the Red Cross has not even made the demand to immediately see all 240, to see that Holocaust survivors are getting their medication, to see that babies that have been um, um, taken hostage are alive. All of those infrastructures are funded by countries. I'm not talking about Hamas. I know it doesn't care for international law. But all of this is funded by countries like Canada and the United States and many of the European countries that do care. So there is a lot of work to still be done. And no, it's not a call for all those countries to leave the scene. It's a call for them to actually lean in and uphold their own legal and moral responsibilities to ensure that those hostages are immediately and unconditionally returned, immediately and unconditionally. Okay, we didn't talk about what you raised before, which was um, your work with the Interim Parliamentary Committee on Social Media and Anti-Semitism. Do we have another two minutes to ask, is that because you're now doing this portfolio, are you able to devote or is it still part of your mandate, the work that you were trying to do with all the social media platforms um, 
back in 2021 when it started. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I held a hearing with Twitter and TikTok and Google and Facebook in Israel's Knesset, realizing that basically this is not only a global challenge, but only a global solution when it comes to online. And that, of course, what happens online does not remain online. But now that Twitter is taken over by Elon Musk and this has happened, what work can you still do? Um, as legislators from across the world, we held a hearing in the American Congress. Then we held a hearing just last summer in the European Parliament because the whole idea was to, to have a continued conversation in what is a crazy proliferation and increase in anti-Semitism online, which obviously seeps into the real world. That conversation has not only continued, but has become obviously all that much more urgent, like all the other conversations. And the way to begin to identify and combat that lethal hate in all of those spaces and places that have allowed it to fester and to permeate is I'm going to go back to it, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. So that online, when Zionist codes Jew, which it does, which is why Khamenei can call for the destruction and annihilation of the Zionist entity without even being so much as flagged by any of the social media platforms, the only way to be able to, to address that is to ensure that the policies that all of the social media platforms have. And by the way, they have protected characteristics. They just don't include Zionist. They include other uh, protected um, characteristics, but Zionist is excluded. And so that we can see that those social media platforms are held to account for not only what happens online, but for what happens on the streets immediately thereafter. And we already have plenty of evidence of that. And that, that, that they are held to account in all of our various constituencies. Are you still using this um, to call in things from Telegram and Signal as well, or still sticking to TikTok and Facebook and the mainstream? So look, we, 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 we've engaged all of those uh, social media platforms that will engage with us. To be very honest, there are social media platforms that have no concern for identifying or addressing or combating anti-Semitism on their... Um, and, and by the way, Telegram was used and Facebook was used to live stream the atrocities of October 7th. We have to be very clear, not just the terror that it served in order to be able to showcase to the world. You know, the Nazis at least were ashamed of what they did. They hid it. The genocidal atrocities of October 7th were live streamed using social media platforms. And let's begin with those that are mainstream, so to speak, and let's begin with holding them to account so that we can continue creating a safer and a livable environment for all of civilization. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. I want to give you the background before we end on Canada's vote in the UN last week in New York. Jordan put forward a resolution that called for a humanitarian pause in the fighting so that aid could get in to the Palestinians in Gaza. Canada tried to get the resolution changed that would add the words Hamas and to clearly and unequivocally condemn the terrorist attack on Israel. But that didn't happen, so then Canada abstained on the final vote. We did reach out to Canada's ambassador to the UN, Bob Ray, for an interview to explain why but Global Affairs Canada has not yet granted him permission to talk. Thanks for listening to the CJN Daily. The Dunfield Retirement Residence offers customized living options to complement your independent, active lifestyle. Welcome home. Welcome to the Dunfield. Visit us at thedunfield.com to book a personal tour.